Now entering Nerdist.com. Big Pop Fun. Live in California, USA, it's Big Pop Fun with Tom Wilson, the show that loves big, likes pop, and has fun. Now, from the Wilson World Studios, here's Tom. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Big Pop Fun, the podcast. My voice is rough again because I've been playing. It's Please check it out when it's on TV. If it ever makes it to TV, pick up Banana Cricket. Boy, are we having some laughs in the studio. Uh, yesterday, I laughed harder than I've ever laughed during an animation session, and that's that's saying a lot. But uh, Well, anyway, I'm playing the psychotic banana, and I'm screaming sort of at the top of my lungs. So please excuse my voice once again. Well, you know, I do the voice excuse, I think, every time, either allergies or screaming. Thank you so much for being here. Another magical sleigh ride of enchantment and wonder as we realize that the sleigh ride... It doesn't happen all the time, like uh, every week. So we must relish it. We must relish the sleigh ride. We must drink in the magic and the enchantment when we have the opportunities to be together. So warm up the earbuds because here we are. You know the Big Pop Fun is brought to you by Art Support Artists wherever you are. Please buy books, buy paintings, the real paintings. By jewelry made by people. Go to a show where live human beings are performing. Musicians, actors. Uh, go to your nearby poetry slam and enjoy. And tell the people that you appreciate it. And tell the people when you don't appreciate it. Let's have a dialogue. An honest dialogue about art. Okay. Um, <laughs> or, or just practice the art of human contact. Make, uh, make a piece of art yourself. Make a relationship a piece of art, a great work of art. Approach an old friend with, uh, with forgiveness or with real appreciation for them, with, with compliments or with your, um, your, your love for them. And create a masterpiece of art within your own relationship. Big Pop Fun is brought to you by my book also, The Masked Man, it's called. All five-star, well, not all five-star, but, you know, five-star average on Amazon. If you haven't read it, I suggest it highly, and I wrote it, but I like it. Um, it's available for Nook and Kindle and iPad, and it's available as an audiobook on Audible, or when you go to the page on Amazon, The Masked Man by Tom Wilson. You can have options to download it as, I don't know, 10 or 12 hours of me talking, and who can't get enough of me talking. I know I can't, although I'm tired of my voice already. Um, or And check out my paintings. Hey, thank you so much, people who've commented on my paintings on BigPopFun.com. When I first made the, specifically the pop paintings of, of uh, pop toys and objects heroically lit in classical realism, I meant them as, um, in a way, ironic self-portraits um, that I've talked about before. That didn't come across at all to anyone, uh, and the paintings were looked at by a lot of people as uh, decor for kids' rooms. I didn't mean them at all that way. I meant them as uh, actual works of art as as paintings but um some people appreciate that others don't but hey go to bigpopfun.com and look at the paintings that i do and suggest to me a painting that you would like to see me do and maybe i'll do it info at tomwilson.com info at tomwilson.com or write me give me a postcard p.o box 18106 encino california 91416 
Heather King is my guest today. I had never met Heather, but as a reader of books, like you maybe, um, I read a book of hers called Redeemed that was recommended to me by someone. I enjoyed it so much that, like some writers, I went in and had the whole, I read the entire Heather King canon. I read, um, I read Parched. Her first memoir, I wrote, uh, I, I wrote, I read Redeemed, as I said, I wrote, I read Sure to Flame, Sure to Flame, my, da- my daughter, I, I gave it to my daughter to look at, and uh, in a couple days, I said, how are you liking that book? She said, I, I read the whole thing the afternoon that gave it to me. It was fantastic. So Shirt of Flame, uh, she wrote a small book called Poor Baby. She has a new book out called Stripped. Um, she is... Um, She's a tremendous writer. Uh, she's a writer of 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 her own uh, quest, of her adventures, uh, both fun and dangerous, both uh, wise and mistaken. But uh, I recommended her books very highly, and I recommend that you enjoy my conversation with Heather King. It's Big Pop Fun. Heather's here. Heather King. Um, let me ask you, did you, gr- you did not grow up in Los Angeles, did you? No, I did not. Although I have adopted Los Angeles after 24 have. years as a beloved, beloved place. But um, no, I, grew- I uh, was born and raised on the very short coast of New Hampshire. That's on the East Coast, people. It's of part the United of New States. England. Yeah. Well, I'm from Pennsylvania. We know where New Hampshire is. Once you get out to, what, Ohio, then they stay, it starts getting cloudy. Yeah. But for the East Coast people, they don't know the Midwest. They don't know. Well, it's then you get out to a place where it's like Missouri and Yeah, it's just like Iowa thousands places. of miles of cornfields. I don't know. And yeah. then it's like, Oklahoma's out there. It's like, I think it's somewhere. Yeah, it's like, is Idaho next to Kansas? Right. Or, or, yeah. I've so often performed in a place... Uh, Indianapolis, you know, and then they're talking about going to Nashville, and I'm thinking, when are you flying? And they say, well, we're driving. And I go, well, yeah, how close? Well, it's no, it's like, like four-hour drive, no, three, three hours exactly. drive. What? <laughs> right, and in our minds, it's... Right, like, yeah. you must be going two days to, down to the south or something. No, right. it's, it's right over right. there. Yeah, I had that experience with West Virginia and Pittsburgh. I thought they were, like, in different parts of the no, country. No, they're right next they're, to each other. No, they're, like, it's part of, yeah, the whole... Yeah. Yeah, so, I, yeah, but I grew up on this little tiny, way, way up in the northeast part of the uh, country, so uh, that was kind of my universe. So what, um, what, did, were you one of those old New England families? Dad carving scrimshaw in the shed? <laughs> what, what was... <laughs> no, we were one of those old New families with, old families with Dad drinking bud and listening to the Red Sox out of the Oh, there you way, go. Uh-huh. With tomatoes from the garden... Um, what did Dad do? Dad was a bricklayer, and uh, his parents had come over from the old country, uh, from Ireland, uh-huh. and so he came from a long line of uh, uh, Scottish and Irish bricklayers. And um, really, was like his dad was a bricklayer as yes. well. Uh-huh. Oh, like in Ireland, like Grandpa was a. He was from Glasgow. Oh, my oh, gra- my grandmother was from uh, Limavady, uh-huh. I guess it's pronounced Ireland, and. Um, so, uh, yes, my, my grandmother and, and grandfather lived 
a little bit further up the coast. New Hampshire only has 13 miles of coastline. They lived in this beautiful town called Rye, and they lived in a brick house that my grandfather had built, and we lived in a brick house that my father had built. I'm just looking at our sound, making sure we're hearing everything. Everything's fine. Good. But so, how many, how many siblings did you have? Um, just the seven of them. Oh, that's all? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Any bricklayers? Actually, my oldest um, brother, Alan Jr., uh, became a contractor, and he lives in uh, in the South Bay and has for way longer than I have. He's been in L.A. He kind of brought me out here, actually. So he went into the building trades, and uh, I have a brother who's a commercial fisherman, um, a brother who's a teacher. I have a brother who's in the punk band, front man for the Queers. Uh, the Queers. Old, old That's school his... punk band. See, a punk band just goes politically incorrect no matter right. what you have to exactly. you have to like no one's insulted by it because they realize you were stuck and had to do it exactly <laughs> right. I, yeah. so, I'm sorry but I had no choice it's a punk band yes and he really he, he still he yes. still sings in the band he's five years younger than me which means he's 57 and he's been doing it forever yes and he tours all over the world Europe South and so I, ma- I imagine they have a following that you could do that. Oh, yeah. That you can keep touring, keep. Yeah, he has a huge following. And he comes out here every once in a while. He was at the uh, Echo a while ago. And his shows are always at, I go to bed at 9, and his shows always begin at midnight. So I'm always right. like, oh, do I have to? But I'll wander down while they. And what is his name? I'm sorry. His name is Joe. Joe, Joe. King. Oh, yeah. jo- Joe King. Yeah, he goes by Joe Queer. That's his kind of stage name. Uh-huh. I was going with that during a part of the 80s. Uh, Joe Queer is a stage name. Didn't work out Didn't at work all. Didn't work out for you. <laughs> Apparently there was a punk singer by the same name uh... and had to, had to cancel that out. So, but I, I'm just trying to say, like, your, your family was um, industrious and kind yeah. of just went into trades and things Super like that. Super hard work, yeah. I mean, very uh, uh, Yankee, hardcore work ethic. Uh, when I converted to Catholicism in 1996, people would say, oh, oh, Catholicism is so harsh and rigid. And I'd be like, no, I converted to get to something softer than the Calvinist work ethic with which I was raised. Uh-huh. Yeah, so it was, um, no, great family. I mean, mother and father both. My mother was a housewife and uh, just solid, solid. Mom was there when you went to school. Mom sure. was there when you came home. We had supper together every single night. Uh-huh. Um, but my father worked his fingers to the bone and sure. kind of left. It would be dark out and freezing cold. He'd come back and it'd be dark. So uh, he recited poetry. He was a construction worker and he had this deep kind of poetic Irish heart and he'd go around the house kind of bursting into uh, you know his fake version of Danny Boy and uh-huh. So it was beautiful. We loved books, and uh, we loved music. We had a piano, and we loved nature because nature was free. Um, so we, we did a lot of, we would go and dig clams. We had, uh, he had a boat, my father, so we had lobster traps. So we didn't have a ton of uh, money, which all of us kids um, continually joke over many decades later. But um, hardworking, really um, solid uh, Salt of the earth people. Uh huh. And was da- do you think? Because I think it's true of me too. I think it's true of so many artists. That do you think that dads, it, it, like you described, uh, dad's romantic view of life actually impressed upon you so much 
that you, you, you looked for that in life? I think partly. And, you know, my father also had a deeply dark, hilarious, fatalistic, self-deprecating sense of humor. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> which... I think is truly the greatest gift he gave to all of us. Everyone in my family is really, really funny. And he was the funniest of us all. I don't know how he did it, but he would just have us rolling. Just his, his take on stuff. So he had that kind of Irish, um, I think probably um, kind of emotionally repressed, um, hardworking, poetic... He would, he would cry. I mean, sometimes we'd be watching the Waltons and we'd be all mm-hmm. jeering and laughing, even though deep in our hearts we were totally moved. And my fa- you'd look over my father would be wiping away a surreptitious tear, mm-hmm. you know. He really had the tender heart. So, yeah, I think partly that. And then my mother was very, very smart. She herself had um, wanted to be a writer and um, sent out one thing, one piece, one time. It got rejected and never sent anything out again. And, and that was a big part of my... Both sides of my family were deeply affected by alcoholism. My parents weren't alcoholics, but I think that kind of deep fear of abandonment and rejection and don't step, don't step out, don't make a fool of yourself, like, please, you know, don't, don't... Like, we feel enough shame already, don't do anything. And, and I think um, my own writing came... Um, I, Partly, I think we do, we inherit our parents' unworked baggage in a sense, and I think... Um, I think we do. I mean, I think uh, Kurt Vonnegut uh, wrote of that with with his parents, and his mother, I, I'll probably get the facts wrong, but his mother uh, trying to write and not doing well at it, and his his theory is that that, that somehow got inside of him that wh- whatever we'll do, I, I will win that battle. Exactly. You know, for my I'll do mom for or something. Exactly. I'll do it for and, you. and you just say, okay, well, you will reject her or your dad or whatever way. Well, here we go. We're watching this then because I'll work, you know, harder at it. I'll dedicate myself completely to it. Exactly. I will. I will. Um, and that's been a huge theme in my life. Really, I understood from a very young age writing. I mean, books saved my life. Um, the day I learned to read was just an absolute next to the day I had my first drink is, <laughs> and maybe the day I took my first communion it was just a red letter day I mean to learn to read when you're five or six it just opens up the world mm-hmm. to you and, uh, and I always thought of, of writers as kind of akin to gods I thought where do they mm-hmm. live I really thought when I was little you know, maybe they lived in some special place so I always had a deep mystical sense of the power of story and writing without I'm not articulating this at the age of six but that it was it was mysterious and it had great great power so um, but I think wasn't that that was also I think communicated in a good school wasn't it I mean if the good school with an attentive teacher was presenting a work like that as this is really something special Yes. That, that you should really, you should or you can, is available to you to really enjoy. Yes. And, and I think, first of all, books were important in our house. I mean, we didn't have a lot of money, but for my birthday and Christmas, 
I would get a book. That's what I would get. We got to go to the Phillips Exeter bookstore, and we would get some great The Yearling by Marjorie Kennan Rawlings or The Wind in the Willows, Mm -hmm. Kenneth Graham, and it'd be beautifully illustrated. And um, that was just kind of the highest form. And I got, yeah, that's what I want. I don't, I'd rather have a book than clothes, even though I like clothes. And then I also went, I went to public school, and in those days anyway, beautiful, beautiful public education. Um, deep, I felt I was a straight-A student. I was valedictorian of my eighth-grade class, but I never felt like I wasn't being challenged. Or um, So there was a deep uh, reverence for, um, or respect, rather, at least, for for learning and for books and for literature. Mm-hmm. It, what kind of what kind of girl were you in high school? I mean, what, your brother. So your brother, let's the, the punk singer. Yeah. Like someone in the family was taking the you know the outside lane. <laughs> <laughs> you know. In this, I will claim credit for that. In this race yeah. to adulthood, you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Joe was saying, "Okay, I'm I'm off in this direction." Were you going in a different direction, or were you in that direction of of something, uh, what a quote unquote sensible? Oh, no. No, 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 no. I was not. Oh, no. I was deeply, uh, deeply troubled by the time I was. I mean, I I took my first drink when I was 13. And what um, what is, what is, what was that like? Because I don't know. A friend. Religious experience. It was. Yeah. A friend of mine many years ago who's passed away uh, told me that about, you know, because I. I didn't understand its its incredible attraction. So I asked him, like, what what happened? You know, and he said, um, I went out to a party early in high school, and, you know, people had a bottle of something, and I drank it. And, of course, at a party like that, then everyone's saying, let's dance, let's do this, let's go out and make trouble. And from the first day, I just thought, how can we get more of that booze? Because that is it. Totally. That was it. That is the sign of an alcoholic. I, I heard a woman not long ago talk about her first drink and how this is not how normal people process alcohol, but this is an alcoholic. It was her first drink. She had a cup of straight cherry hearing or some horrible liqueur at a party because she just wanted to suck it down. She was sucking the thing down. It kicked in, and within two seconds, she thought, First she thought, this is incredible. And her next thought was, this is going to wear off sometime. Where can I get more? And that is the physical, that is the craving of an alcoholic. Once you put booze, or as it turns out, lots of other things in your system, it sets up a craving. You want more. You want more. And it doesn't matter how horrible the repercussions are. And for me... You know, you sometimes hear, oh, drinking for the alcoholic is first it's all fun, then it's fun with problems, then it's all problems. That's the trajectory. That I went through that trajectory the first night I drank. You know, it's like an hour of all fun, mm-hmm. then it gets fun with problems, then it's all problems. I blacked out. I couldn't remember anything for the last. That is not normal drinking, 13 years old. But that first hour, literally, it's a fake religious experience, this experience of being at one. I mean, I had all this stuff going for me on the outside. It was a straight-A student athletic. I won all these contests in school. But inside, I just knew 
I'm deficient somehow. This is a fluke. They're going to find out. I just didn't, never felt like I was enough or that there would be enough money or enough love. And the, and the booze. And this was before you were 13. This was just, yeah. just from, you know, loving parents and everything, but there was something in you. Yes. And it's why later the, the story of the fall in the Bible made total sense to me. I mean, there's a split somewhere way, 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 way back and way, way deep where we're separated from ourselves. Obviously, the huge rift between men and women that I think is at the heart of war. And in a way, if we felt at one with one another, I just don't think we'd be blowing each other up. So, uh, but I had that from a very young age, deep sense of exile. And when I had that first drink, um, it made me, religion means to bind back together. And that was the effect it gave to me. And that feeling was so compelling. Um, I chased it for, for 20 years, but, you know, hoping I could recapture it. But the thing about the first time is you don't know the price that you're going to pay. So it can never be that good again, because even the second time, it's shadowed by the knowledge of what happened the first time. So when you time. were 13, <laughs> the, actual, the actual first enjoyment of the thing was gone. Y- yeah. Because, in a sense. Well, in so a then sense. you're just chasing that first thing that will actually never happen again. Exactly. Wow. I, I have a friend who says, drinking never made me happy. It made me feel like I was going to be happy in 15 minutes. And that is the alcoholic... Um, it's so sad because, in a sense, that's our, that's our feeling about God, too, about our holy longing, however you want to put it, our longing for connection, for transcendence. We reach for it, and it's always a bit beyond our grasp. But when it's a kind of life-filled, sane search, the longing just draws us closer in a, in a beautiful way so that we're willing to sort of sacrifice for it and keep going. But the, but the kind of satanic, dark way is to take you into total bondage and suck all the spirit, all the soul, all the life out of you. But, you know, you're, you don't know that at the beginning, and then you're gone. So you were pretty gone through high school. Oh, totally. I mean, I still, I couldn't get booze every day. I mean, I was 13 years old. Right. So it's a bit like hard for a fake hang, ID. Hanging out in the corner, yeah. prostituting myself on the streets of Northampton, New Hampshire. Yeah, yeah. But, um... No, but the craving was there, the lying, the immediate uh, kind of moral corruption, the um, willing to compromise, these very, very high moral values that I'd been raised with. Um, But yeah, just out of control. It was the 60s. I graduated from high school in 1970, Woodstock, 1969. There were tons of drugs in Northampton, New Hampshire, this tiny town. People were shooting heroin. We would drop acid and go to school. I mean, it was crazy. Yeah. So you you found you found a, a bunch of people who did the same stuff. Yeah, my best friends. Really? Yeah, and they were all really smart, um, funny, kind of. Uh, some of them were kind of political activists. We'd sit around and smoke pot and listen to Joni Mitchell and. Listen how do you? How do you? How do you find those people in high school? See, I'm, I'm just, I'm literally, I'm asking you questions, Heather. I mean, I've been around a long time, and I've known a lot of people. I've worked in nightclubs mm-hmm. uh, since I was 19 years old. So I, you know, so I've seen many, many, many things. But sometimes, like, I speak sometimes at things and groups and even retreats and things. And every time, uh, every time it is a, a, a recovery-based 
event, I'm honest and say, I don't think I can because I don't know anything about it. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't identify with it. And if I talk about it, it's just not going to be authentic. Right. Because I'm not from that and I don't understand the culture. Though, as I say, look, as a comedian in nightclubs since I was a teenager, I mean, I've stared at the culture right next to it for my entire adult life. Right. And yet... You know, I, I don't understand it. So I'm coming at it from still great ignorance. Well, I think it's, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, if you're an alcoholic, especially a sober alcoholic, that the, it's not a weakness. If our willpower, no one has more willpower than alcoholics around everything but alcoholism. I mean, around everything but alcohol. So it's not a matter of will. And it, it took... A, the problem is, under the sway of this obsessive-compulsive illness, you do things that are completely morally indefensible, and you have to be completely responsible for them. But the disease itself is not something that you ask for. It's not a weakness. No, of course. I mean, I think, I think of course, and it's a good thing, that I would think almost every corner of the culture understands that now. Do you think? Do you think? Is there still that kind of of like bootstraps guy out there? Well, what you get is, um, and and again, people don't have to understand it. And who would understand it unless you have it? Because it is cunning, baffling, powerful. I mean, but I have spoken to people many of the time, kind of just trying to lay it out. Like I just did. It's not a weakness. It's an, right. No, you're just born with it. It's a predisposition. You put. It's like a Molotov cocktail waiting to blow up. Mm-hmm. You put the match in there and forget it. The conflagration. It's on. And they'll listen very patiently. And then at the end of it, they'll say, "Yeah, I could have been an alcoholic too. Yeah, I, I drank a little bit too much in college, but then I just quit." And you're like, "Oh my God!" They totally don't get it. If you could quit, you would. Right. It's not the person who wakes up and goes, well, that was a little out of hand. Yeah. I better straighten this strip and, you know, whatever. And then they do. Yes. That (laughs) is not the alcoholic. No. And, And because they, if you're not an alcoholic, you're capable of doing that, of making a reasoned decision and applying intelligence backed by willpower, as we do to most things or are able to do with most things, and simply stop. They think, they look at the pathetic alcoholic floundering around, ruining everything, um, stealing, lying, cheating. And they go, well, look at that. What a pathetic... Like, they they look at that. They think, I could stop. Why can't he? And that is what you just have to be content as an alcoholic with um, not being able to um, explain or, or defend yourself. But I think the, the gift of sobriety and the mystery... The mystery of the illness itself and the mystery of sobriety is so huge. That alone could just absorb me for the rest of my life. So you have to, um, you just have to be content with realizing people are not going to understand it and they don't have to. Sure, sure. But it is, it is fascinating that through this uh, very difficult adventure, let's say, you were having... Mm-hmm. You actually became a lawyer. Yes. And meanwhile... I mean, which is pretty amazing. Well, this is what I mean by... Don't th- ever think the alcoholic doesn't have willpower. Because I was at that point... I, I um, graduated from Suffolk Law School in Boston in 84. 
uh, I got sober and clean finally in 87. So I was in the, that was near the end of my drinking, quote, career. So, meaning I was in the throes of acute alcoholism. I mean, I am talking morning drinking, 8 a.m., hanging outside some old men's bar in North Station, waiting for it to open. And I uh, graduated from law school with honors, and I passed the Massachusetts bar on the first try because that's what alcoholics do. Yeah, like, how, I mean, <laughs> how do you do it? Like, how do you... Did, could you sleep enough? I mean, how... We, we, what I did was, uh, in law school, especially the first year, you only have one exam, and it's at the end of the year. So I sort of marginally kept up during the year. I would show up at class, I'd be completely hungover, and then I'd go back to the bar. But I would kind of... I'd go to class, and I'd take notes, and I'd sort of sit in my corral, hungover, so I would kind of keep up. I'm, I'm, I'm good at that. That's a gift of mine. I mean, I'm, quote, smart. I can memorize things well, and I'm just kind of trained. I'm very disciplined in a certain kind of way, and I really like to get good marks. I'm super competitive, even, mm-hmm. even as a falling-down blackout drunk. So I was just, oh, I can do this. But then at the end of the year, this is, this is very alcoholic and kind of masochistic. I would, quote, go in the wagon for maybe two weeks and put in 14 back-to-back, 16-hour days, mm-hmm. just the memorizing six just, subjects. Wow. like a cram, like no... Total like cram. The, yeah. I mean, you have to do that anyway, but... So it would be this kind of, um, you know, I would barely eat and just drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes. And um, I was seventh in my class of over 300 my first year. Um, but the whole thing, the problem, one of the problems was it no, no desire to be a lawyer. Oh, my God. Throughout law school? Oh, none. And in fact, as the law school drew to an end, I became increasingly panicked because not only did I not want to be a lawyer, I didn't, I mean, I can't describe how ill-equipped I was. Can you imagine the thought, being a falling-down blackout drunk, of having people come to you with their problems? I mean, are you kidding me? I can't, like, get dressed in the morning. So I knew I wasn't going to be able, there was no way on earth I was going to be able to work as a lawyer, which was really horrible, because my my dear, hard-working parents had helped me put, had helped put me through law school. I mean, the shame, the guilt... Of course, they're thinking, oh, finally, she's going to get herself together and do uh, something. I'd been a waitress the whole time. So really, drunk. walking for your diploma, you know, oh, this isn't going to oh, work Oh, I was out. drunk. at the last, It was at the Heinz Auditorium in Boston, uh, I think on a Saturday during the day. I was loaded, drinking champagne in the cab on the way there. Drunk, not falling down, but just low-grade drunk during the ceremony. We went out to eat. I had a million martinis. I mean, just gone. So sad. And this, uh, well, let's let's book plug in the middle of our conversation, but you talk about this in the book Parched, right? Yes. In your, your, your first memoir. Yes. Parched. Yes. Which you've written three so far, right? Uh, um, Parched, Redeemed, Shirt of, Shirt of Flame. Flame. Then, I have, uh, now, <laughs> then I have this book, um, a short book that I self-published, Poor Baby, uh, which is about kind of healing from, you know, my experience with and sort of healing insofar as you ever heal from abortion. Um, you know, a really bad, tragic track record out there in the bars. And um, so that was obviously post, 
not obviously, but that was post-conversion. So I wrote a uh, short book about that. Um, I just self-published a book called Stripped, Cancer, Culture, and the Cloud of Unknowing, which is about my bout with um, breast cancer in 2000. I went against medical advice, Mm. etc. But anyway, yeah, I have a bunch of memoirs. I just keep telling my story. (laughs) Were Were you compelled to do that at a point, or was that always inside you that... I would like to, I would like to tell stories, and they'll probably be about me. You know what I mean? You, like, <laughs> yeah, did I always that, know but, the, but that, the that narcissistic year, I, wound? You know, I mean, I was like that. I guess that's that 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 kind of the the inner show person somewhere. Yeah, saying like, I'm going to tell this somehow, or I'm going to make share, this interesting, right? Or share myself with people. Was that was that in there, or at one point in your life? Did you... Uh, was the lawyer a writer? That's my question, I suppose. Yes. And the, and the drunk was a writer. And in fact, how I came to writing... Although, let me just first address... No, I never... I didn't have the idea that I would write about myself endlessly. Although... <laughs> although that's although, the way it's worked out, although, Heather. I mean, come on. I just said to this friend of mine the other day... Um, hoping that she would contradict me. I said, I mean, I kind of said it in passing, but I said to her, like, well, you know, I'm, I'm narcissistic. And she just kind of nodded. <laughs> right, right. So there's that. But, but really, memoir, I hope, I pray, it's not narcissistic. It's not, the interesting thing is not me. And I never could have started to write until I got sober and came to the church. Because the real, the miracle is, the only reason you tell this stuff about I tell this stuff about myself. It's not to be confessional. It's not to be therapeutic. It's, can you believe we have a universe in place that would save a wretch, save someone who was so severely misguided? And um, the the kind of the mercy, the forgiveness, the abundance of the... um, just the mystery and also the paradox of the universe. And so that's what I'm always trying to get across. But so, no, I didn't know I would write. I never, I wasn't going through life thinking I need to tell my story far from it. Although, but I always had, from, again, from the age of six, I always had deep in my heart and it was so deep, I was afraid to tell people I wanted to be a writer myself. Uh-huh. And it was like this secret. I think every human being has something in their heart that is so... We don't even dare say it out loud. We're afraid people will make fun of us. It's We instinctively know, oh, I need to protect that a little bit because I can't afford to let that thing... You might be letting every other part of yourself be violated, but I couldn't afford to let that be. And it was deep, deep in my heart. And, uh, you know, when I finally got sober, I had this law degree... And, um, and I just thought, oh, please, would you step up to the plate and be a grown-up for once in your life? You've got this law degree. People would give their right arm. And so I really felt, and I started to have this kind of incipient idea of God, something greater than myself. That's how it began? Just a kind of a, the whispers of something that's underneath everything? Yes, and in, a, and in a more simple sense, I was so grateful to be sober. My family had an intervention. They sent me off to this place in Minnesota. I kind of went under duress, and, and something happened there. The obsession was removed. It just removed. It was just gone, this obsession that had been on me 24-7. And uh, 
And the, the immediate result of that is, in a way, my, my idea of God has never evolved any further in the 27 years since I've wanted someone to thank. You know, I didn't want to thank a philosophy. I didn't want to thank an abstraction. I wanted a person to thank. And I think that's really how I came to God and eventually um, to Christ, to the Catholic Church. I'm sure that is a long story, but is there a version that you could share with people? Well, first of all, let me, because of a person like yourself, a very intelligent, wonderful writer, uh, uh, so, so much has happened. I, I was, this is a few years ago now, and a very good friend of mine said, Tom, can I talk to you for a minute? Mm-hmm. I said, like in that series, well, I, I really have something to talk to you about, which happens rarely. Okay. And we went off a little bit privately. Can I ask you a question? I said, well, well sure. I don't, what? He goes, well, we've known each other a while now. You're an intelligent guy. You're very kind to people. You all you know. He's, what a wonderful guy. Well, well thanks, Lysis. I just have to ask you, how can you be a Catholic? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 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 exactly. <laughs> I get that. It, all the that's what? your question. <laughs> well, I can't. It's like, it doesn't. It's like your life compute. doesn't compute for me. I, I just don't. Exactly. I don't understand it. I had a really similar thing one time I had this friend her mother had died and the and the mother had lived in this trailer park in some godforsaken place outside San Diego and no one else would come and my friend was down there alone I was exhausted I was I'm sure suffering from some hideous series of torments at which at any given time I, I remember just being super tired and I thought I'm going to go down there and be with her just to be at this thing it was like at the clubhouse at the you know what I mean it was mm-hmm, kind of sure. great in a weird way but I drove all the way down to San Diego exhausted patiently sit through the service talk to the people try to comfort my friend we go out for coffee after and, and the same thing she was like I just yeah what I don't get is how, like, why, why are you, yeah, same thing, you're really, such a, this, you know, why, earth? I just don't see how you can be right. Catholic, and I felt like saying, are you, you know, really, it was all I could do now to say, um, I'm Catholic so that instead of, like, having sex with a stranger in an alley this afternoon, like, I came down to your mother's funeral, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. It's like, it's like, they're not two separate things, it's like, that's why I can show up for you. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> you know well, what even I mean? Waugh, the, the writer, I'm showing up. <laughs> Waugh, you know, this devout Catholic and and uh, you know and misanthrope. So just understand people who said you know people just don't understand how hateful a person I would be yeah. if I were not a Catholic. Like this. This is what you know. It's this like is just the duct tape that holds us. everything together. Exactly. And my question to the guy, which was honest at that time, was, uh, honest to goodness, I don't understand how an attentive person couldn't be. Beautiful. You know? Yes. 
because I mean you're paying attention too, just like me. Right. So re- real attention, I think, man, it's just a funnel. Exactly. <laughs> and that's a great segue into just just a thumbnail. No, absolutely. Because what happened was, I got sober, I got married, I moved to L.A., I passed the California bar, I start working as a lawyer, and I got a job as a lawyer in Beverly Hills. I'm almost 40, and I've achieved the American dream, right? I'm married, I'm making money for the first time in my life, I've got a job. And I under, proceeded to undergo an existential crisis such as couldn't take place when I was drinking because I wasn't even awake enough but I mean in a, in a thumbnail I've thought a lot and we just went through Lent and Easter and when, and when the devil takes Christ out into the desert and tempts him and basically what he tempts him with is power property and prestige and as I'm working as a lawyer and I don't want to slam the legal profession let's say it was not for me and I saw absolutely no joy anywhere around me and I started to realize not, not even so much, although this was certainly the case. You know, just the whole, it's like the Supreme Court, the United States, all this stuff you're inculcated with as a kid that I had never much believed in. But, but this time I really saw this is not, these are just a bunch of broken human beings like me who are, who are like in charge of things. This is not, this is not right. Plus, so, you know, there's kind of the military system, the economic system, the legal system, all of which you see is basically arbitrary and is held by people who are, like, lusting for power, property, and prestige. The whole thing is based on that. But beyond that, the system that says it's okay to put on a suit and every single day of your life go to a job that you moderately to intensely loathe and you're going to make a ton of money and you're going to have a house and cars and a vacation home and everyone's going to say, shake your hand, give you awards, consider you an upstanding citizen. Everything's going to be safe and secure and go on like that until the day you die. Like that, that system. And that is truly, I think, the system of you know, the evil one of darkness. I mean, because it doesn't, it's not, oh, the fires of hell and the guy with the pitchfork. It's this bland, boring, homogenized, sanitized, vicious lie of hideous bondage. That's that, you know, our culture, that's what most people live in. And I just saw, I cannot, I cannot do that. I cannot have gotten sober to serve that master in a way. And so I proceeded to have this huge, you know, I started looking around, where do you look, everywhere you look, make more money, have more sex, cheat on your husband, get another house. And I just, no, 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 that's not it. Luckily I had my fellowship of fellow drunks and that was for sure and remains really the deepest kind of North Star. But I started asking those questions that you're saying, you're talking about, if you pay attention, you have to come eventually to Christ, like you have to sort of deal with him. I think I said, it's you know the stumbling I mean? block of yeah, the cosmos. The I mean, exactly. it's just the you have to you have, have a to, response to him. Right. You either have to say, "Oh, he was a nice guy," and I didn't believe that for you know, I didn't believe for a minute that's all he was. But but also you have to sort of you have to because what Christ is is who you come to if you really ask yourself. 
how much courage am I going to have? You know, how who am I going to... Like, I'm either going to be in bondage to power, property, and prestige, some form of, you know, to fear, basically, the fear of taking off into the unknown, or I'm going to take this leap. And I really... Because meanwhile, this call of the writer as it turned out, had come back. That was the thing. I mm-hmm. knew, like, oh, my God, this is... I just knew this is what I'm supposed to do. Oh, come on. God, this cannot be. I'm going to quit my job as a lawyer. I've never made money. Everyone knows writers don't. And I knew... I didn't know what I was going to write. I knew I would not be the kind of writer who made a lot of money. I, you know, I just knew I'm going to write about my weird random leave on the sidewalk, you know, thing. And and you don't make a lot of money doing that. And um, But... I just I started going around to churches. I've been raised in the Protestant church. I went because I had this deep, deep need to pray. I mean, truly anguished, Garden of Gethsemane. Show me the right thing to do. I so wanted to do the right thing. You know, when the culture says stay and do the safe thing and be a lawyer, well, you can do a lot of good for people. And I was thinking, I'm like, I'm not going to be able to do good because I don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. I don't. That's not my mind doesn't work that way like you and I were talking about before I think that's what I like to do I'll be alone and ponder <laughs> right you know it's right. like it's not a career move it is not a career move it's I almost crazy for. I mean you think for, for so much of my early life I thought there was a, like a I was crazy because when I was I, in, in Catholic school I mean everyone else was playing football right and I was literally just walking under the trees and contemplating the universe yeah I mean who does that yeah and you like, so you no. have that your whole life right right and you're just desperately thinking I'm so weird like I need to and I'm so selfish I need to fit in but I never thought yeah yes I never thought oh one day I'll find uh, like a, a microculture where I can meet people like myself and, and have a, you know, a reasonably happy adulthood. I thought, I, I'm crazy and I'm always going to be like the weird outcast kid. Right. That, you know, that no one will really understand. Right. Including myself, and, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> and then you, at some point you find out, no, people, they don't oh, understand no. and I don't understand. And that's part of, but. Yeah, and and I think it's interesting. I mean, and I'd always had, and the comedy. I just watched this Bill Hicks clip the other night. I'd never seen it before. Nineteen eighty-eight, I think. And he says, um, he had just heard someone else say, describe or define comedy as the reframing of reality in a positive light. And um, you know, he said we live in a really screwed-up world, and I really think we need we need comics to kind of set us straight. And I couldn't agree more. I think comedy is another. It's such a mystery. It's so close to um, suffering in a way, or, or or love. It's like the, one of the few things that will take us out of ourselves, take us out of our um, tormented, conflicted state for a minute. It brings us into another sort of realm. And I'd always been all about let's break through the fourth wall and enter that other realm. You know, right, I mean, right. drinking is a way to do that, but it's like a death way. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, and, and so in the Catholic Church, oh, my God, this is just, it, it, I just, oh, this is the place. It's got it all. The mystery, the love, the love and suffering so close to one another. You know, the reality, uh, you know, I believe you can take reality. And reality is 
our hearts long for love, and love requires sacrifice. I mean, that's kind of it in a nutshell, you mm-hmm. know? Like, no, you don't get to, we don't get to have it all. That's, that's the American way. It's a lie. It's a vicious lie. It leads to just these pathetic bondage and, and to what's boring. And uh, so I came into the church and I quit my job as a lawyer um, almost at the same time, within, the, within a couple of years. And they've been very, very, uh, always deeply intertwined, the sense of vocation and mystery. Mm-hmm. Was there, was there a, a, a road to Emmaus moment? Or was this was it a process? Truly? It was a process, <clears throat> and um, and as I said, I started going around. I mean, it was weird. I thought, what has become of me? You know, I'm still. I mean, I'm a child of the '60s. Every friend I had who had been <coughs> gone to Catholic school just hated Catholicism, blamed Catholicism for <clears throat> everything that was wrong with them. Although they're Ridiculed. incredibly bright people. Yeah, exactly. Because they've had a Catholic education. And I still love them. I love lapsed Catholics because once a Catholic, it's true, always a Catholic. One thing Catholicism does, it's serious. No matter how screwed up the message might have been that you received, like, we do get it's serious. Like, this is serious stuff. You know, Catholicism Mm -hmm. takes our, the stakes are life and death. It's about, right? right? And so, but anyway, um, but I just thought, oh, my God. I mean, I kind of bought all that contempt prior to investigation. I didn't really know any. I didn't know any Catholics. I didn't really know what Catholicism. I had the kind of um, knee jerk. Oh, it's they hate women and it's really rigid and weird. And um, but what happened was I started going around the Protestant churches and just being, what? This is like a social club. No, I don't want to. It wasn't. There was no meat there. And I kind of worked my way up to the. Uh, Episcopal Church, you know, and I started to, of course I was reading, because that's how I come to everything, and so just very eclectic reading, uh, of course I read Thomas Merton, like everyone in the world, Flannery O'Connor is a huge, she has really been my literary mentor, and uh, and if there were, was ever, uh, well, certainly a, a Catholic artist who was about that, um, I think the core of that, the, the, the Catholic well, it's just getting in it up to your elbows. Yeah. It's just getting, it's just realizing what you said, you know, realizing that this is serious. This is a life or death struggle. Yes. And and you just have to get in it. Yeah. Or stay on the sidelines. Right. It's and like I'm incarnate. In it. Exactly. Right. <laughs> I'm in it, body, mind, spirit, soul. Right. You know, and... That's it, and it's messy, and it's bloody, and it's beautiful, and it's messy, and it does the edges don't hook up, and all of that. Um, but what really happened was, um, I'd kind of been to every church, and meanwhile, this this was really kind of the turning point. I was still working as a lawyer, and don't I don't even know how this happened. I had my childhood Bible. I'd been baptized um, when I was nine or ten. I had this childhood Bible I'd carry around with me, obviously, for my whole life, even during the drinking. Little gold, my name and gold on the cover. And I brought it, started bringing it to work with me and reading the Gospels. I mean, I barely knew the difference between the Old and the New Testaments, you know? I mean, I can't describe how theologically um, unschooled, which I'm still not very, but I started reading the Gospels, and that... I just 
that is what the church has. It has the Gospels and the Eucharist. I mean, I just saw, oh, this isn't, this isn't about men in dusty tunics 2,000 years ago. This is about, this is guy, is t- is, he's telling us the only possible way you can live in any kind of integrity. Right. You know. That, that I think, I think we've lost because there's such a, you know, there's such an attack, well, there's an attack on all of Christianity as being sort of anti-intellectual, anti-everything, but... You're talking about things that Leo, Leo Tolstoy was talking about, and Dostoevsky was talking about. Yes, and I mean every, right? I mean what William Shakespeare was talking about. I mean, the, yeah, the struggle I mean Kafka that, in his right. way was talking. Yeah, the existential, what the right. hell that, and am these I things doing continue. here? <laughs> right, and why am I in so much pain? And these co- things continue, but we do have a society that screams to us. No, we're over that. Exactly. It's all phony and anti-intellectual. Buy this car. Exactly. Exactly. And um, so I just, the whole thing just kind of, um, I mean, literally almost the scales fall from my eyes. And I just absolutely saw, oh, I mean, I'd always been concerned with war. I grew up during the 60s. And, and I just saw, oh, he, here's, Christ died. He he was so the opposite of a doormat, but he consented in a way to undergo death. He, he underwent the violence of others rather, not in the course of perpetrating violence himself, that's what people do who die in the course of war, but instead of perpetrating violence. And thereby vanquished death. And so, and that whole... Um, manifestation of the of the crucifixion has always um, I mean our culture is so so violent I mean it just fetishizes violence and that was one really major way that um, Christ really spoke to me I mean I saw oh this whole love your enemies I mean it is just radical and he's not saying be a doormat he's not saying don't open your mouth in fact that is the fiercest, most radical way to be is to look your enemy in the eye and refuse to cooperate in their violence by returning violence for violence. It's the hardest thing in the world. And most of the time we work it, that gets worked out with like our roommate or our wife or our co-worker. Um, but I, I saw, oh, this is how, you know, everything we do affects everybody else and therefore I can participate in this urgent ongoing battlefield between good and evil the drama of the world just in my tiny tiny little invisible daily life you know my sobriety huge for a drunk to be sober one day help another alcoholic huge convinced that it helps stop war stop domestic abuse all the kind of socio-political stuff but it's from this spiritual point of view. It's from the point of view of, oh, the problem's not out there. It's in me. How can I change? That's what's radical about it. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. I don't... Um, so <laughs> let's... Um, well, let's talk about your books a little bit. I mean, I have to let you go, I know, but... but uh, I mean, you have some, some things that you've written. Um, so, th- then you, you wrote Redeemed... You, uh, we've gone over all, all the, the, the names of your books and Shirt of Flame, which my 
my which my daughter loved. I told you that. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, what's What's the next thing? Are you working on something now in particular? Oh, oh yeah, I'm always working on stuff. I have a I have a food. This kind of food memoir, Eucharistic food. Um, it's called Famished that I'm working on. A series of essays, just food, food. I mean, Christ so had it right. He knew it's all about the food. So kind of. I, th- I, I always talk about that, the humanness of that, of when he appears after being resurrected. The first thing he asks is, do you guys have anything to eat? Exactly. It's today's gospel. Mm-hmm. They're out fishing. They see him right. on shore. He cooks them breakfast. Mm-hmm. Fish and bread grilled over a fire. Unbelievable. Yeah. This is, he's so our guy. He's so one of us. Yeah. Um, but wait, I just want to say... Prior to the book, my first book was 2005, and, you know, prior to that was 10 years of working in total poverty and obscurity and just serving as a writer, writer. long, long apprenticeship, and I never for one second thought it should be any other way. This, it makes me cry. You know, I feel like, what, what an honor. Like, I never for a second... I so honor and respect the writers that came before me. Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have occurred to me to think, oh, let me just, I can just sit down and, and start writing and get published. No, I, I thought, no, I need to serve, I need to serve an apprenticeship. And I really did for 10 years, and I sent out, I mean, I probably had 40 essays published before I ever got my first book, and uh but then the books followed along. I had a gig on NPR, as all things considered, for a while, which was a blast. And mm-hmm. I would get to do little stories about L.A. Because what happened with the writing was I found it was the stuff of my daily life that, um, to me, is, is the Gospels come alive. And that's what spirituality, quote-unquote, is. It's just our, the beauty. L.A. is a wonderful place it's so full of paradox so full of squalor and beauty well let's talk, can we talk about that a little bit about yeah. you finding los angeles i mean not the whole story but how, like, how does that happen you're in new hampshire and you're a lawyer and you're doing all these things well in la and and in your blog and in, the, the, in all of your writing i'm yeah. just such LA's a, a real... love affair with la it's yeah and sometimes it's a love-hate affair as well but no i just um i think that's part of um and I, I so want to impart this. Like it's, um, I think one of the functions of the, of the incarnation is we we get to fall in love. We're just invited to fall in love with whatever is around us, with the birds, the traffic, the flowers, the the whole deal. And um, I wasn't articulating it that way when I first came to LA. But I mean, we, we moved here in on New Year's Day 1990 and I mean to come from the heart of a New England winter to there were kind of camellias starting to bloom or orchid I mean it was just you're kidding me and um, and I've never quite lost that sense of, of kind of the immigrant who's might they might come to the door and send me home make me go home right, the next right. day. not that I love New England New England's deep to my, in my heart but and I think that my love for L.A. was very much a part of my conversion because I just instinctively saw, look at Christ. He studies the grain of wheat, the mustard seed, the lilies of the field. He loved beauty. This is how we come. It's about the desire of our hearts. Um, so that's just, it just fell down. That's or, or the way things fell that I wrote about a lot about my daily life and struggles and, my, and the beauty. And, but this is the thing. Okay, 
And it's so beautiful to have this. Really, thank you so much for, for having me and listening to me because I will just ramble. But this is this beautiful thing, and the timing is so great. Um, so I've had this blog for three and a half years. Um, it was originally called Shirt of Flame, Musings on Los Angeles, The Writing Life, Divine Intoxication, and The Thin Line Between Passion and Pathology, one of my favorite subjects. Um, and then I, I changed it to just Heather Kang because I had a different website. It was too confusing. But anyway, so writing, 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 working, working. Things have started to open up over the past few years. I do a lot of speaking now. I travel about. And just a few weeks ago, I get this email from this guy at the Tidings, which is the um, archdiocesan newspaper mm-hmm. of L.A. And he said, um, I figured he's a young guy, just from the kind of the lingo that he used. And he said, hey, I'm new in town, and I'm, I'm at work for the Tidings. And... Um, I love your stuff in Magnificat. I write for this Catholic magazine. Hey, I wondered if you'd ever have time to have lunch. And um, I thought, oh, how sweet. Here's a little... He said, we can crash mass if you want at the at the archdiocese first. They're, they're done in Koreatown. I thought, how sweet. A little like a cub reporter who... He's just new in town. Yeah, let me go down and have lunch with him. What fun. I love when people buy me lunch. I'll go like to lunch you know, anyone uh-huh. who will buy me lunch. Anyway, so I get down there, we sit down, and um, I'm kind of chowing down this cheeseburger and wiping mayonnaise from my mouth and stuff. So I go, um, and he's a young guy, 36 years old. I said, now what do you do there at the at the tidings again? His name's J.D. Ron Garcia. He said, well, actually, um, I'm, I'm editor-in-chief. And, uh, <laughs> so I cracked up. This is so typical of me. I never know who anyone is. I'm yeah. always kind of like, Pope. oh, it's Francis now. Okay. Um, who I love, by the way. But anyway, the point is, he says, I'd love for you. We want to open things up at the paper. I'd love for you to write a weekly column on arts and culture. And my heart just stopped. I mean, this is my dream. He said, it doesn't have to be Catholic. Arts and culture, more or less carte blanche. Mm-hmm. Um, we we just we just think you'd be the person for it, and um, so I have just been reeling from this. I mean, just that the guy has the idea to do this because what better way to bridge to build a bridge? This is how we hear all this stuff about the new evangelization, and I'm like, oh God, do we have to make a project over it? Like, I mean, I just don't. Like, let's just tell each other about the books we're reading and the museums we're going to and all of that. So I accepted, and, um, and I'm going to start apparently in May. And, and so I've actually been barely slept because I'm really, it's a lot, that's a lot. I've suddenly realized a weekly column. Weekly is amazing. Yeah, a yeah. weekly column. But, um, you know, and you kind of have to, 50% of the stuff should be about L.A., so I've, I'm already kind of mapping out. But, I mean, the... Abundant, the crazy, crazy, crazy cornucopia of stuff. I mean, from urban square dancing to, I just went to the Pollinator Garden at the Natural History Museum. There's a new Anne Frank exhibit at the Museum of Tolerance. I mean, that's my stuff. That's what I've been writing about forever. Mm-hmm. The beauty, the kind of way of life in L.A., the culture, and the arts. And um, so, so people can check that out, but... Wh- 
God will is it, good. Will it be on the t- a tidings website? Will it be after it appears in the tidings? Will it be on your blog? Or w- where could people it will read be, those They also things? have an online... Um, oh, okay. I hope I'm not, I'm not speaking out of turn. When is this going to air? Because uh, the column has... No, I'll, I'm going to hold this off. Okay, okay. Yeah, a couple case, years. I'll hold this off. In like, do you think Look. better of it within the next couple of weeks? Um, no, they have an online... The, the tidings is both, it comes in both a print version and they have an online, mm-hmm. which is great because you can put little videos and links on it and stuff. Right, right. Um, and then I will also... Uh, Yes, I will definitely link to it or have a little teaser paragraph or whatever on my on my blog. Because I'm also doing this weekly column on prayer and pilgrimage for this place called Alatea, A-L-E-T-E-I-A. Um, and, and that's a website. That's an online journal. So mm-hmm. uh, on my plate's a really, weekly. really full. So, wow. Yeah. You like to think and ponder and, well, and, and walk. Of... And now so many people are honoring that yes. that you're like, wow, you've got to start the factory. In a way, and, and you know, I need, as you know, you know this as a comic. I mean, the thing is, you need a huge zone of silence mm-hmm. and solitude. I mean, I can go to the garden, I can go to the museum, I can go to the theater, and then I have to sit and just let it all, the way I write, it's, because it's not, I'm not going to be doing reviews. I, I just have this my own way of doing it, but I have to then sink down and just let the thing rise up out of it. Um, so yeah, it's a lot, but um, I'll either rise to the occasion or not, and life will go on. But I'm deeply um, touched and honored, and it's and I feel like, you know, I never, I've just always resisted this kind of. Um, I think a lot of people use Catholic. Um, it's a brand. It's become a brand. Catholicism as a brand, and you see people using it as a marketing tool. It's just grotesque to me. And I'm always, not that I don't crave readers and fame and recognition and money, but I've just always been about let's go out and take like, let's look at the, the hummingbird or the, or the um, you know, I, I mean, I've just always resisted that. No, it's about beauty. It's about uh, my own faith has to be being deepened or well, I'm doing something Beauty wrong. will save the world, As right? As Dostoevsky said. Exactly. Beauty will save the world. So I'm totally into that let's look at a hummingbird. Yeah, and, which, and which let's laugh said. at ourselves. Like beauty and comedy, you know? Right. Like let's... Um, yeah, because that's how... Um, Tap dancing at the edge of the abyss. Yeah. Or whatever, just say, you know, just... Yeah, and just be, be ourselves. Like, don't, you know, I don't have to try to be um, smarter than I am, more, feel, more theologically intelligent, learned than I am. I'm just, I'm just another human stumbling deeply stumbling broken human being who, who came to this I'll be darned this living water and um, just want to share it you know like let's come come sit let's eat and tell some jokes right mm-hmm. well Heather uh, I've spent all this time uh, not gushing you know but uh, I think I couldn't recommend your work more highly to anyone uh, parched redeemed Shirt of Flame, Poor Baby, the blog that people can find at it's heatherking.com. Uh, and thank you so much for talking to me. I hope we can do it again sometime. I, think, I, think I mean, because I mean, I could, I could 
listened for a long time, a long time. But I appreciate your being would on. Would you? Would you have? <laughs> no, no, no. It's it's been terrific. So I, I thank you. I thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Tom. As you can hear, Heather is um, is a careful observer of life, her own. Uh, the life of the culture and the life of the world around her, both natural and and, and human, and uh, as you could, I mean, she she pays attention. I think the first, you know, the first order of business for every artist, for any artist, as I've said on the podcast before, is to pay attention, and it costs something to pay attention. But she has paid great attention in her lives, and I think it's a great blessing uh, for certainly me reading her books, and maybe you, who uh, who will look her up and buy the books, parched or redeemed, or shirt aflame, or poor baby, or stripped, or the, the websites that she mentioned. So anyway, thank you so much for being here. Thanks to Emily Wilson for helping produce. Thanks to Chris, Katie, everybody at Nerdist Industries for, for helping me with uh, the Big Pop Fun podcast. Thanks to you. Consider subscribing to the podcast since I'm not getting it out every week because I've been so busy. Maybe that's a good way to just have it in your inbox there uh, and and be, uh, be subscribing to the podcast so you'll get one when it comes out. But uh, I will talk to you next time. Bye. Now leaving Nerdist.com. 